we'll do the whole chapter. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And the, the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait until the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took the doors of the gates of the city and the two posts and pulled them out up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him um, to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I'll become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in, an in, were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes of his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept... Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. Then, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep pulled away and pulled away the pin, the loom and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all her heart oh, and he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will, shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on his knees. On her knees. Sorry. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. 
And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at the other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hands, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when, and when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which this house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he, whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ashatol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good reading, Sky. I, I said to Sky, I said, don't just, you know, when we read God's word, two things. One, it's not just any book, right? Um, it's God's word. It's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. But it's, um, you know, when we do readings here, it's, we, we want, we want the, to be captured by the essence of it. And so you did a great job, because um, there's a lot of drama in this text. You know, speaking of drama, some of you have probably, it's been about 20 years now since the Lord of the Rings trilogy um, came out, if you can believe 20 years. And there's a creature in this uh, series, and his name is Schmeagel. And uh, Schmeagel is, he's a simple guy. He likes to go fishing and hang out with his good mate, Deagle. And um, one day, Schmeagel, or I should say, yeah, Schmeagel, as they're fishing, he you know, gets uh, pulled in to this river and he's chasing this fish and he notices that there is a ring and he goes, wow, what's this? And he pulls it up and he uh, shows his friend and um, anyway, I won't give the whole thing away or sit here and tell you the whole story, but let's just say that his desire for this ring absolutely consumes him. It binds him. 
It blinds him. It, it eventually grinds out his entire life to where he becomes this hideous creature called Gollum. Um, he, he, and he's, he's got this bizarre, bipolar, sort of crazy multi-personality sort of thing going on where there's maybe moments of him where he's Schmeagol and he wants to do good, um, but then he's, uh, uh, he's become so in, just infatuated with the ring that he even just, he, he talks to it, and you know, my precious, right? And he's just, he's obsessed with this thing. And he, he, it's this gross picture of sin, actually, um, of someone that's been just so enraptured that they're willing to just, they're willing to kill friends, they're willing to do anything to hold on to that sin. Um, I'm gonna spoil it for you. It's been 20 years, so, you know, forgive me. But at the end of the movie, when they're in, near the fires of Mount Doom, right? There is Frodo, and he doesn't want to throw in the ring and destroy it. Um, and he goes, no, the ring is mine. But just then, that creature Gollum shows up and bites his finger off. And they're fighting over this ring, and they both go over the edge. And here's the thing, this part always blows my mind. You're gonna die, right? You're falling into a lava pit. No chance of survival. Gollum doesn't care. The, the ring has so binded and blinded him that he's, as he's falling to his death, he takes the ring like this and clutches it to his chest. You've got moments, seconds to live. He doesn't care. And even when he hits the lava, he lifts it up like this, just trying to look, 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 look. And it, you can see his eyes just staring at it just the, at the very last breath, and he's burning alive. You know, sin can do that to us. Sin can bind us. Sin can blind us. And sin, the results, grinds us. That's what I want to look at today in the life of Samson. That sin is binding, sin is blinding, and sin is grinding. But praise God, we have a Savior who's so much greater than any of our sin. And so we'll, we'll get to that. But before we jump into the text here, why don't we pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we come now as distracted people with a lot on our minds, no doubt as things begin to lift and we're probably thinking about shopping and all kinds of stuff that we haven't had for months. Uh, Lord, all of that fades, outfits, coffees, all that is gone, but Lord, your word en endures forever. And so we pray now that you would give us uh, fresh and alert minds, even if it's through live stream, to connect with you through your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So it's springtime in ancient Israel. Love is in the air. Just like the movie Bambi, the people in ancient Palestine are being twitterpated. They're falling in love. And then we see this guy lying on his bed, listening to the radio. And as the 15th song comes across the radio, the love song, he's laying there staring up at the ceiling, stroking his beautiful hair, feeling quite sorry for himself. See, Samson is there and he's there alone. He's had some time to cool off now from the wedding fiasco, but he feels that, you know, his heart aches for his lady. And maybe 
Maybe she'll forgive him. So off he goes to Timnah again. But, you know, with how everything went and turned pear-shaped, and remember he stormed off in a fury, you can't show up there empty-handed. So you, you got to grab a box of chocolates and some flowers, which is the equivalent of a young goat back then. And as he gets closer to the house, he can almost feel her embrace, smell her perfume, and he has this picture in his, in his head of ringing the doorbell and seeing her jump into his arms, Samson! Except things go sideways. He rings the doorbell. She's not around. It's his father-in-law. And he looks at him and he goes, mate, you, you, you can't come in here. Seriously, she's gone. What? Yeah, look, I, I gave her to your best man. I mean, just figured the way that you just got so cheesed off and stormed off in the wedding, we thought we'd never see you again. And I actually thought that you hated, I thought you hated my daughter. But I've got a consolation prize for you. So now let's pick up. In Judges chapter 15, Judges 15 verse 1 says, After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not let him go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. All righty. Well, his father-in-law, beyond being quite a worst dad of the year, knows that Samson is a hothead. He's seen it firsthand. And he knows that Samson could crush him, right? So he tries to pacify him. Uh, and what does he do? Hey, you know, look, I know things went sideways for you, but here, take my younger daughter. Besides, she's better looking. Like, gee, thanks, Dad. Um, notice, though, in verse 3, what Samson, he, he's, he's not, he's not, he doesn't buy it right? He, he's not going to go for it. No one can tell him how to find a wife. Do you remember last week? No one can tell him how to, his parents couldn't tell him how to find a wife. Nobody can tell him, not this bloke. And notice he, he's, he only cares about himself in verse 3, you see? And Samson said to, him, to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. What is up with this guy and animals? Seriously, right? First it was a lion. Now it's these 300 jackals or foxes. And then soon he'll grab a jawbone of a donkey. I mean, you know, what is up with that? Another puzzling thing is, how on earth did he do this? <laughs> I, I just, you know, and how long did that take? Did he set traps? Did he just like run and chase them down like Ace Ventura? You know, like what, what happened here? We don't know. The, the, the one thing to catch though is, I want you to see his attitude. You notice this is mainly a personal vendetta for him. He's all about getting even, right? Remember, despite the fact, though, he's the one who bailed on the wedding, stormed off in a fury because he lost the riddle, remember? 
Anyways, this vindictive plan with the 300 foxes works. Um, as I want you to picture this. As these animals run into these fields, you know, 150 of them, right, with fire on their tails, they'd be trying to separate from each other, which would cause them to zigzag all over the place, burning everything down. Yeah, so I had said 150 because obviously there's pairs of two. So you picture them. It's a, it's a cruel thing to do, too. No doubt these foxes or jackals probably died, and they're freaking out, running all over the place, but it works. You almost picture Sinister Samson, too, to kind of almost laugh. At his, you know, he, just think about this. He could have done this himself, right? I mean, if you're wanting to burn things down, I mean, he could have just, if you're wanting being an arsonist, you can do that without this cruelty to animals. But you almost picture him as he, puts the fire in and ties their tails and sets them loose. He's almost kind of laughing with each little, you know, fire brigade that he sends in there, so to speak. And remember, though, that step back. What time of the year is this? It's the spring, the time of wheat harvest. So all of the Philistines' work there in Timnah, all their food, all their money, literally goes up in flames. You thought our economy was going to suffer. I mean... This is, this is just tank things, right? The entire agricultural production in Timnah has been wiped out. You can imagine how infuriated they are. And news travels fast in a small town because once they discover who the arsonist was, they retaliate by fighting fire with fire. What his wife worried about comes true, sadly. They burn uh, her and her father and her in-laws. Now, how does Samson respond? Does he rally the troops at that point and say, I'm Israel's deliverer, follow me, man. Remember Ehud, the left-handed bloke? Remember the one of the things he says, he'd rally the troops around him, follow me. Is that what Samson does in verse seven? No. Notice verse seven, he runs everything through this grid of me, myself, and I. Look at verse seven. Look at his words. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. So after giving them a sound and thorough thrashing, Samson thinks, well, after I do that, I'll be done. I mean, you can't keep going tit for tat forever, right? So once I whoop you guys, I'll go retire into a cave. I'll live a quiet life. And... That'll be it. Unfortunately, that's not the way the Philistines see it, though. Um, they launch an all-out military campaign to seek and destroy him. They arrive into Judah's territory, and while on this manhunt, they begin raiding nearby villages of Judah. And what happens? The men of Judah come out and say, whoa, 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 guys, guys, what's the matter? Haven't we been faithful to you all these years? Have we ever given you a reason to attack us? Uh, you know, we're quite happy with you ruling over us. And the Philistines answered, we're here for that bloke Samson who decimated our economy. Oh, okay, sorry, you want Samson. Whew, what a relief. We thought that we did something wrong. No worries, we'll go fetch him for you. And they send 3,000 men to go bind him and hand him over to the enemy. Now let's pull back here for a second. Think to how this book of Judges began. Do you remember? Way back in chapter one. Do you remember when the nation of Israel still had land to conquer? 
and they asked the Lord who was to go up first in carrying this task out, it was Judah. And this tribe was super king. It's kind of like a kindy classroom, you know, when the teacher says, okay, boys and girls, who knows the answer? Ooh, me, 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 pick me, pick me, ooh, 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 me. Right, that was Judah. They were the most switched on tribe. But now look at them. They dispatch 3,000 men not to fight the Philistines, but to go after their own deliverer. The bravest, most courageous, most patriotic tribe have become a bunch of sellouts. Look what they say in verse 11. It's sad. In verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? What a confession. It's no longer God who rules them, but the Philistines. You know, Samson, things were going quite well until you showed up. You know, we had a nice sort of public relations between us and the Philistines. What are you doing? Sure, they overtax us and, you know, take our wives and, and children, but, but it's just the way it is. It's our best option. What a pathetic display of God's people who, out of fear of man, have capitulated to the world. And the same goes for us today, friends. There can never be a harmonious relationship between the people of God and the world. There needs to be a difference in opinion, a contrast in lifestyle, a distinction in behavior. I'm not advocating that we should be nasty or combative, but if we are happily coexisting with the world, if there's no conflict, if there's no rub, it is because the world has won. I mean, think of the situation in Judges, right? Judah, they've got the biggest dude on the block right in front of them, on their side. Here's an opportunity to rally around their God-appointed judge and deliverer and be freed from their oppressors. But in order to save their own skin, they just throw them under the bus. They're blind. They're bound. You see, sin is binding. Sin is blinding. And sin is grinding. I want you to look at the next verse here in verse 12. And Samson, notice he doesn't trust them. He says to them, um, verse 12, and they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They already said they're not going to kill him, but he doesn't trust them. They don't trust him. It's interesting that they send 3,000 guys. He's unarmed. <laughs> I mean, the guy's got a reputation, right? I mean, if you're, if you're going to attack some MMA fighter, you probably shouldn't send Dan and I, right? You know? Send a, send a police battalion. I mean, it's just like, they know this guy is, is not just an ordinary bloke. But they don't trust him. He doesn't trust them. And notice in verse 13, then they said to him, no, no, no. We, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. 
Now you can just picture this scene. As Samson is led toward the enemy camp, at first they can't quite make out that it's him. But as he gets closer, it becomes clear that's the enemy. That's Samson. Just then you hear a burst of cheers break out like a goal has been just scored in a soccer match. Some of the soldiers begin jumping up and down. They can hardly wait to get their hands on him. Samson, his hands are tied, literally. He has no weapon, and he's about to encounter a bloodthirsty army. You could say the deck was stacked against him, but suddenly, like the rushing of a wind, the spirit comes upon him. He snaps the ropes like dental floss and grabs a bizarre weapon, a fresh jawbone of a donkey. It can't be an old one, that's dried out because it'd be too brittle and break. So there he is, hands free, adrenaline pumping, weapon ready, he goes to work. I mean, (laughs) seriously, somebody needs to make a movie on this, right? One guy whoops a thousand dudes, a thousand soldiers. Can you imagine what he looked like when he was done? (laughs) Just bloody. And here's the interesting thing too. Do you remember he has a Nazarite vow? Right? Do you remember what I was saying last week? He disregards his Nazarite vow. What are Nazarites not supposed to do? Go near a what? A dead? Yeah, that's right. It's a fresh jawbone. Meaning it's potentially, it's like, you know, it's not like it's old. Remember, if it was old and it'd be gross and, and break and be brittle, this thing could be still, who knows? It could still have guts and blood on it. I have no idea. But the point is, is he disregards his Nazarite vow, right? Now, here's what's interesting. Following this stunning victory, what does he do? Well, he isn't your typical thick-headed, muscle-bound NRL player who just grunts after the game. No, Samson's a poet, albeit a crude one. But look, look what he says in verse 16. He looks at this pile of dead Philistine bodies, and he says this in verse 16. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down... A thousand men. So, after crushing a thousand of these guys, writing a a crude poem about them, he chucks the jawbone in the bin and he goes, we got to name this place. Let's call it Jawbone Hill. And that's what he does. But by this time, he's absolutely knackered. Remember, he's still a real man with real needs. And if he dies of thirst at this moment, it's going to be worse because they can take his body and they can pray it around and say, look what we did to Samson. So this is the first time he prays. But again, it's not the best prayer. <laughs> it's like, where are you, God? I need water now. Look here. Look, look in verse 18. Look what he says in verse 18. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. And so then he calls the place Color Springs. And there's this interesting note that says that he judged Israel 20 years. But if you look carefully at, at verse 20, uh, this is... He judged in the days of the Philistines. 
Remember the other judges, like in the beginning? And Israel had peace, right? For X amount of years. Samson begins to bring deliverance, but someone else has to complete it. So it doesn't say that he gave Israel peace. Obviously, the Philistines are still a threat. They're still probably ruling over them to some degree, aren't they? But Samson is beginning to repel them back. And this last scene, we're going to look at in a moment here, in a sense, crushes them, huh, in a sense crushes them, um, actually crushes them not only literally but psychologically speaking and theologically speaking. And we'll get there in just a second. But the next chapter shows him heading off to Gaza, right? And he's here in, this is probably the capital of Philistine territory. So he's, he's deep into the heart of Philistine territory, right? And, and what's he doing? <laughs> Again, what are you doing there? Are you fighting the enemy? Well, let's see. Verse six, uh, chapter 16, Samson went um, to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Notice, he, notice again, he sees, he goes after. Remember, he saw a woman in Timnah. He sees the lion, or the, the honey in the lion. He sees, he takes. Now, word spreads that Samson's in this town, so a crew of guys surround it. Right, they, they know it's probably, it's probably not a good idea. Remember the thousand blokes that shouted, woo, like the soccer match? Let's go more SAS stealth on this guy and surround the place. And when he's sort of rubbing the sleep out of his eyes from his wild night and he's exhausted, then we'll kill him. Well, Samson gets the jump on them. And in, instead of, I guess, you know, really breaking through the gates, he decides, why not just lift up these entire gates? Now, this is superhuman strength as the Spirit of the Lord enables him. He carries these things from where he's at in Gaza, right, to this place in Hebron. It's 62 kilometers uphill. <laughs> this is something out of like a Marvel movie, right? And it totally humiliates. I mean, and if you're the guys, now maybe... I don't get here why they didn't try to attack him. Like, if, if he's sort of, you know, maybe it's just, it's so humiliating. I don't know. Maybe it's just, I mean, that's pretty crazy. Uh, it, it'd be like, you know, me picking up this entire building that we're standing in now and carrying it to Hornsby, right? Like, I think Hornsby's like 60Ks or something like that. That's south in case you, those of you don't leave the coast very much. That's just, that's a little south from here. So, that'd be, you know, rah, that's me picking this thing up. Except I'd be going not down the highway, but like up a hill, right? So, if you're the Philistines, you go, there's no way, even with, if we literally throw an army at this guy, or if we send in our best SAS assassins, we can't get rid of him. He's a threat. He, he's a national threat to our, to our well-being. What are we going to do? He's got to have a weakness. You sort of picture them in a cabinet meeting, and one guy says... I know his Achilles heel. Pretty ladies. And so, now we pick up the famous Samson and Delilah episode here. So, jump with me. I'm in chapter 16 in verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. 
And the lords of the Philistines, notice the, these are just, you know, these are all, picture all the premiers coming together, right? The, these, these aren't just like a couple of, this isn't at like the wedding. Remember at the wedding they said, there's, you know, a uh, handful of companions, or they, well, how, forget how, much, how many companions he had, how many? Something like that, 30. Like these, these are the top dogs of the Philistines, and they're actually coming to her. So, and, and so, which is, makes you pause there to think, well, this guy's actually, like I said, a national threat, isn't he? So, so, they, so they come to her, and, and what do they say? Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, there's a couple things there I just want to note. Um, it's interesting, I don't know if Samson was just ripped, like, because we picture that, we picture him to just, you know, just be just massive, but even if you're like, even if you're like, you know, Chris Hemsworth or whatever, like, you don't pick up, (laughs) you don't pick up things and carry them 62 kilometers. So I think, and you don't rip, lions apart with your bare hands, even if you're like the most, you know, shredded guy. So clearly, the, Samson to them, is it, it, he's a riddle to them in a way, isn't he? Kind of like the wedding riddle. Now I want to discover, and this time there's a lot more playing than just 30 pieces of clothes, by the way. His life is on the line, and, and they want to know. So they use, so they, they do some collusion with this mistress that he has called Delilah, and they say, tell us, seduce him, find out what is it exactly that gives him this superhuman strength. Now, this is amazing to me. I, I, yeah, I, we, we got to keep reading. So Delilah, verse 6, said to Samson, please, tell me where your great strength lies. How may I kill you, Samson? <laughs> it's, just, it's just insane, right? Please tell me where great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could, in theory, subdue you. Samson said to her, They bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried. Then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now, she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to them, said to him, Samson, right? The Philistines are upon you. But what does he do? He snaps the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Now, I don't care how good looking Delilah. I'm no doubt. I don't think I, I. She was a babe. There's just there's no no question. Delilah was sorry if I offended any of you ladies saying that. She was very good looking. She was beautiful, right? I don't think. Yeah, I don't think she. Yeah, she was she was good looking. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the hashtag MeTooMim is watching. I can feel them, right? She was a good-looking lady. Respectful. Actually, not. But I don't care how good-looking she was. Um, dude, she wants to kill you. Like, isn't that obvious? Right? I mean, but it's interesting. He keeps playing this cat-and-mouse game r- with her, right? Why? Why wouldn't he just run for the hills? Well, Barry Webb, I quoted him last week, he has two interesting thoughts on this. He says this, First, since the secret of Samson's great strength 
is what every Philistine wants to know but cannot. To ask him to reveal it to her alone is to tell him she wants to be his soulmate, to know him as no one else does, to be as close to him as only a lover can be. In a paradoxical way, it is a declaration of her professed love for him. And since Samson, for his part, already loves her, it is a challenge he will find hard to resist. That's the first. Second, I find that pretty interesting. Second, it shows us just how well Delilah knows her man. She knows that Samson is the kind of person who is aroused by danger rather than repelled by it. She challenges him to live dangerously with her and revel in the excitement of it. Again, it is something that this particular man, who has never fully grown up, will find hard to resist. Delilah has read him well. I think that's really insightful. Uh, the woman that Samson loves, right, wants no secrets between them. Fair enough. She wants to be, you know, vulnerable with each other. Tell me all your heart, Samson. But Samson hesitates, doesn't he? Uh, he knows that there's a lot at stake. So he stalls by trying to turn it into a game. He teases her by giving her false answers. But every time he gets closer and closer to revealing the truth. Do this to me, he says. Do that. And I'll become an ordinary man. Go on, try it and see. Eventually, Delilah gets fed up and gives him an ultimatum, doesn't she? Open your heart to me or lose me forever, Samson. Verse 15. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. She got him. You know, this dance with death has caught up with him. So she says, all right, boys, come on back one more time. I, I, think, I think I got him now. And notice here, then Delilah saw in verse 18, right? She knows that she's got him. So she called the lords of the Philistines and said, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought her the money in her hands. She's become quite, this is a lucrative deal for her, by the way. Um, yeah. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him and his strength left him. Now, verse 20 gives me the chills every time. Honestly, I, I, I've read this a dozen times and it still puts a chill down my spine. And she said to him, she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Honestly, I, I got goosebumps even just saying that now. That is insane. I mean, his hectic career, if you think about Samson, well, how did his hectic career begin? Right? It, it began when he saw a woman and to demand her to have 
you know, I demand to have her as my wife. Why? Because she's right in my eyes. Now he has lost those very eyes, as we're going to see. And most importantly, he's lost his connection with the Lord. He doesn't even know it. He's been on a, a trajectory of sin and numbness to his sin for so long. He doesn't even have a connection with God. He thinks he does because he can rely upon his gifts. He can rely upon his strength. But inside, there's nothing there. I think that's a stark warning to us, isn't it? Particularly those of us that have positions of leadership, be it a growth group, or just encouraging people in the church, or serving here, or whatever it might be. We can get into the habit of suppressing sin in our own lives, so much so that we've just become numb to our relationship with God. But then we can deceive others and deceive ourselves in a way because after all, well, you know, I'm really keen to serve. I'm happy to speak. I'm happy to do this and that. Not knowing the Lord has left us, so to speak. Sin is binding. Sin is blinding. Sin is grinding. Look at verse 21. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shekels and he ground at the mill in the prison. Now, this has to be one of Samson's darkest hours here. But there's still a little glimmer of hope. Notice here, it says, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, the Philistines, now that they've got their sort of Hercules enemy, they're feeling quite good. So why not throw a raging party and invite all the who's who, all the politicians of that day. You know, let's hobnob with all of the celebs. Let's bring them all in this place and look at this fool. In fact, what we really need to celebrate, notice, notice here, it's actually theological. Our God, Dagon, has smote, has crushed their God. Verse 23, And the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. Now, they're not only celebrating that, they're going to mock Samson now. They're going to have a go at him. Remember, he was the guy that was unstoppable, and now he has to be brought out by a little boy. He's blind. He's helpless. You almost wonder, too, if Delilah's in that crowd. After all, I mean, she's, she's got, she's rich. She's probably famous. I mean, who brought this bloke down? Delilah did. So if this is the Academy Awards or the uh, Oscars, I mean, she's there. She's receiving the trophy. Yep, that's me. Like, look at him and probably call, maybe he hears her voice. Samson, I never loved you. Ah. People are throwing rotten fruit at him, cussing at him. Maybe he, as he comes out, he, he's trying to do, juggle for them and someone sweeps him, trips him, falls on his face, busts his lip open. Look at this idiot. Ha, ha, ha. Look at what's going on here. Notice. Verse 
23. Sorry, are we already there? 25. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. Let me just say one little quick thing here. I had to study Hebrew for years, and it's, it's a hard language to learn, so at least I'm going to get some payoff for it here. Um, the word entertain there, you can't see it in your English Bibles, but it means crush. Sakak in Hebrew. So they say, call Samson out that he may crush us. I think the, the author there is playing on words, no doubt, right? Anyway, that was a lot of time and money, so I hope it paid off. <laughs> and, and, and Samson, notice here, call Samson and he may entertain us, and he entertained them. And then they made him stand between the pillars. Not sure where they did that. Maybe there's like, hey, go ahead and judge everyone. Look, stand between almighty Samson. You know, they're just mocking him, having a go at him. In verse 26, And Samson said to the young man who had held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against him. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, right? All the who's who. And on the roof, there's a balcony. About 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson crushed, entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord. Here's his second prayer. Now notice what he says. Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this, only once more, right? Oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know, I'm a bit two minds of that. There's so, could he be repenting there? Yeah, maybe, a bit. But he's also more, he's all, what, is he, what is he most concerned about? They took my eyes. So let me get them back. See what, you can, you, this is, can you, can you not picture this like a movie in your head? I mean, this is just unreal. And then notice here, and Samson grasps the two, in verse 29, and Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand and one on his left on the other side. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him and buried him. And that is how Samson ends. It's interesting. It says that he killed more in this moment than he did in his life, right? This place is jam-packed and collapses and, and kills Philistines. Now, what are we to make of this guy? Like, honestly, I want to show you something that I still wrestle with. Go way to the right in your Bible as we close up here. I want you to look at the book of Hebrews. I want you to think about Samson and the other judges that we've looked at. Now, some of these judges have been pretty good. Some of these judges, I, you wouldn't want to have as an elder of this church, <laughs> right? Well, let's just look at, this is Hebrews 11. This is the hall of faith, right? These are, these, are just, these are the people that the author of Hebrews says, now, these guys are worth noting. Starts off, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Um, 
by the people of old received, uh, right? And notice he says who, who he li- lists here. By faith, in verse four, he talks about Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Um, then he talks about Enoch, um, talks about Noah. I mean, Noah had the drunken sort of fiasco, but you know, for the most part, saving people on the earth, that's a good thing. Um, and then he goes into verse eight. Notice by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place where he received an inheritance. So there's the patriarch, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, yep. We know about those guys and his wife, Sarah. Um, it's interesting though, y- y- you keep reading, talks about how Abraham uh, you know, was gonna offer up Isaac and then talks about Joseph and obviously Moses makes this you know, hall of fame and all of these people talks about Rahab as they enter in. But then look at verse 32. The, the writer starts to get you know, out of breath here. <gasps> you know, what more shall I say? Uh, for would fail me to tell of, of... Now, here we go. Here's the hall of faith. Who does he list? Gideon, Barak. Gideon the... Remember, remember Dan's sermon? Like half the guy's life was good and half the guy's life was a, just a disaster. And then Barak, what? You mean the, God, the coward? I mean, he even didn't take down Sessa, remember? A woman did it with a tent peg. And Samson, Jephthah. I mean, those are not the dudes I would have picked to put in here. And yet their lives force us to say there was something some circumcision of the heart, so to speak, some faith, some measure of faith that happened in their lives to where the author of Hebrews, who we don't know what he knows, but he knows enough to write that and say, these guys are in the hall of faith. Now, all of this ultimately, all the hall of faith, you can, all these people have clay feet, right? All of them, except one, the Lord Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of our faith. Tim Keller, in his book on Judges, um, has a great comparison between Samson and Jesus. Now, let me say this, and I'm wrapping up. My seminary professor did this, and it really irritated me, because I was like, out of all the people in the world, please, it's called a type or a shadow, a prefigure of someone who's going to be greater. So you have a type, someone who then is going to ultimately become the anti-type, the the fulfillment, right? You see patterns of things in salvation history. Like, let me give you an example in case I've lost you there. Um, the Passover, right? Take the blood, put it over the doorposts. That's pointing forward to a greater Passover, right? Of spiritual deliverance. So that's cool, but you can't point to a rat bag like Samson and say, now that's a type of Christ. <laughs> I, I really struggled. I still struggle with it, to tell, you, to tell you the truth. So if you can come up with a, you know, you know, better answer for it. Tim Keller, I think, is, is, is helpful here. I'm just going to read this. He says, the most important moment of Samson's life is his death. The most faithful event of his life is the manner of his death. And the most triumphant episode of his life is his death. As he is at last, and at last, performs the role of beginning to rescue God's people that God had explained to his mother when, his an- when the angel pronounced his birth. Samson's death is, in two crucial ways, very different from that of the Lord Jesus. So there's two different ways that they're different, right? First, Samson is in the temple of Dagon as a result of his own inability to live under God's rule and for his glory. 
His downfall is brought about by his disobedience. The Lord Jesus always lived for his Father's glory and died because of others' our disobedience. Second, Samson's death achieved the limited role God had raised him up for, quote, to begin the deliverance of Israel. Jesus' death achieved deliverance once for all, a final rescue, as 1 Peter 3.8 says. But in so many ways, Samson's end is a picture, a shadow of Jesus' death. Tracing it allows us to grasp more deeply what the cross is about and to worship the one who died for us. First, both Samson and Jesus were betrayed by someone who had acted as a friend, Delilah and Judas. Judas was, of course, not as close to Jesus as Delilah was to Samson, but the one who betrayed was far purer and more deserving of loyalty than Samson. Both were handed over to the Gentile oppressors. Both were tortured and chained and put on public display to be mocked. Both were asked to perform, though Jesus, unlike Samson, refused. Both died with arms outstretched, and both appeared completely struck down by their enemies, yet both in their death crushed their enemy. Samson, the Philistines, and Dagon, Jesus, the ultimate enemy, Satan. As Samson brought down the temple, crushing down Dagon and his followers, the spiritual power and apparent triumph of Dagon was reversed. Samson brought the permanent alienation between the cultures so that Israel would become distinct, no longer unknowingly and inevitably under the Philistines' power. On the cross, Jesus brought the power of Satan to nothing, disarming him. How did the cross achieve this? It took away the penalty of our idolatry, death, so that Satan can no longer successfully prosecute God's people. And it took away the power of sin in our lives, enabling the Spirit to live in us, to break the lure of idols in our hearts. Samson prefigures Jesus' triumph at the cross at his own death over Satan. As Samson killed many as he died, so it took the death of Jesus to kill Satan, the unseen power of idolatry and the power of its death itself. That's pretty good. I probably should have read that before I was trying to debate with my seminary professor, but I think that's a really good thing. I found that contrast very helpful. And I say all of that, I think that's a good place to end because, for Samson, because not only does it point forward to a greater death, a greater deliverer, but notice there that defeats the power of sin. Remember I was, I, was, I, was, I was paying out Judah earlier, you know, for being a bunch of sellouts? And I, was, I, ho- I hope you could feel a bit of challenge from that. I, I feel challenged by that, you know, wanting to feel like, you know, you can just sort of keep one foot in the world, have everyone like you, keep your own reputation. It's okay if you just be a little bit of a sellout. But it's sin, it eventually leads to sin, doesn't it? And so... Our Lord Jesus, our greatest deliverer and judge, not only saved us from the power of sin, but also the the dominion of sin in our lives. That because he is our ultimate, perfect savior who by his spirit causes us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. So my friends, may you go in that power this week. May you conquer sin, not by your own strength, not by might, but by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, as we behold this wondrous mystery, you, the perfect son of man, you're living and you're suffering. You never had a, a 
any sin. Lord, we can look to you as our ultimate and true Savior, Deliverer. And we pray that we would, as we delight in you this week, that we would truly say no to sin and live lives that are self-controlled and honoring to you. Lord, we look forward to the day soon when we can be gathered as a church, and we do pray that it would be the 31st, but we trust that you are sovereign over all things. We pray that you would stir our hearts. We pray, Lord, that next week people would step out of their comfort zones and, and make a quick text even now and invite others over to live stream together. Lord, would you build community in our church, and would you grow our church during this time? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.